0: Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Rockets, rovers on Mars, and reaching for the stars are the stuff of dreams and rife with risk. But my two guests today turned their dreams into out-of-this world successes. Dr. Farah Alabey was born in Canada and grew up in a small town where working at NASA was unheard of, but she's doing exactly that now as a systems engineer working on everything from mission concepts to the Mars 2020 mission. She went from student in England to NASA intern to her dream job at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Colonel Chris Hadfield is an astronaut, engineer, pilot, educator, Musician, and the first Canadian to walk in space and to become commander of the International Space Station. And now he's written a book of fiction. Listen to how these two superstars engineered their successes in space and other life lessons relatable to our more earthy pursuits. Thank you for joining us, Chris and Farah, and welcome to At Risk. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks, Jody. Oh, my, my absolute pleasure. So let's get right into it. Tell us, and we'll start with Farah, but Chris, we certainly want to hear from you on this as well. Where does the belief in yourself come from? Oh, that's a good
1: question. Well, so I think for me, you know, working at NASA, as you mentioned, it's not something that was really ever heard of. And, and it's not something that I grew up thinking I could do. It's not like I knew someone that worked at NASA growing up. Um, but I was, as I was growing up, I I became more and more interested in space. I that's that's what I loved and that's what I was curious about. That's what I was interested in, and and I was always sort of going around the house, basically breaking things, taking things apart, trying to understand how they work, and then not really putting them back together, uh, much to my parents' dismay. And and that dream of working at NASA just kept growing. Uh, and one day, I think I just realized, well, you know, yeah, sure, there isn't that many people that work there, but Someone's got to work there, and why shouldn't it be me? Um, And so, and I think part of me also always thought that I was always going to regret it if I didn't apply, if I didn't at least try, give it my best shot, right? And that's kind of how I live my life. It's not so much that I'll know where it's going to end up, um, but but you know, I've applied. I remember before I got my first NASA internship, I probably applied to like 50 internships before someone said yes, right? But that's the whole point is it only takes one yes, it only takes one success, it doesn't matter how often you fall to get there. Um, so I don't know if it was so much belief in myself as much as sort of stubbornness and determination to keep trying until someone gave me the opportunity. Um, and that's, that's how I got where I am.
2: Fair, I know looking at my parents, they're somewhere in between uh, supportive and surprised at the things <laughs> that I did, but your, yours must've been the same. They must've been supportive of you as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think in my household, I remember my parents growing up, you know, there was no gender stereotypes at our house. I was the one helping my, my dad was an engineer, so I was the one helping him fix the car or fix the house. And And my parents always said, you know what, whatever you want to do in life, you do it. Just give it your best shot. Try as hard as you can. Um, And they've never said prescribe something for me. And I think I think that's part of the reason why I'm where
0: I am. But uh, certainly, there's still a little bit of surprise also that I am
1: where I am today.
0: And how about you, Chris? Where did that belief come from? Were your parents champions? Did you have other mentors?
2: Well, um, I, I just listened to Farrah describe my childhood, which was kind of fun, Um and. uh I, I had the same conclusion. I, uh, I'm a generation earlier, but I watched the first people walk on the moon and I thought, well, you know what, when they were little, nobody was astronauts, you know, it, it didn't used to be hard. It used to be impossible. And now they've done it. And the only thing you can really count on is that things are going to change. And so, you know, the, the real onus kind of, kind of falls on me. Um, you know, can I, can I change myself into somebody that as Farrah said, eventually somebody will say yes. And, and um, and, I got lucky. Obviously, Farah got lucky in timing too, because we weren't landing on Mars, you know, from throughout most of human history. But uh, but now every twenty six months or something, we're sending something there. So so uh, both of us, I think, have been the lucky recipients of supportive parents, a great educational system, and uh, and timing. So Farah, tell us what is your role in the Mars mission. So right now I work on
1: the Perseverance mission, which is the rover that landed on Mars just, just under a month ago. It was February 18th of 2021. And I'm a systems engineer on that mission. Uh, but I've, I've, worn many hats on the mission. So prior to launch and prior to landing, I was part of the mobility team. Um, and I was helping with all of the testing of that system, making sure, basically making sure the rover's not going to get lost on Mars, right? We don't have GPS or roads or maps on Mars. Um, so my job was to get all of that testing done. And now that we're on the surface of Mars, I have two main jobs. Um, I am in charge of coordinating all of the operations between the rover and its little friend, uh, the Ingenuity helicopter. Um, so, you know, right now the helicopter is attached to the rover, but um, coming up soon in the next month or so, we're going to drop it on the surface of Mars. We're going to demonstrate the first power flight on Mars. And the rover's job is to help with that. It serves as a communication relay. It's going to image the helicopter, take video, hopefully relay all that back to Earth. Um, so that's one hat. And then the other on a more day-to-day basis is that I'm one of the implementation leads for operations. So what does that mean, right? It's just a big jargon word that we, we like weird titles at NASA. Um, but what it means is that I help plan the activities for the rover on a day-to-day basis. And when you're operating something on Mars, it, it's really far away. So it's not like, you know, it's not like there's someone behind there. Uh, console here, like literally joysticking the rover around. Um, we communicate with the rover using radio signals, but Mars is so far away that it actually takes about 15 minutes at the speed of light, right, to get from Earth to Mars and then back. So if my job was to drive a rover from behind my desk, it would be a really boring day because I would say, Hey, go forward one meter. And then it would take 15 minutes to get there, 15 minutes to get back. And 30 minutes later, or maybe two copies later, I'd get a, a response back. So what we do is we actually work the Martian night. Um, so I always say, you know, I work the, the night shift on Mars, right? Um, so at the end of the day, the rover sends us all its data and its images and things like that. We analyze it then as a team, we plan the next day on Mars. So, so there's specialists, right? Someone knows how to drive, how to move the arm, how to operate the instrument. My, my, my job is to take all of that pieces of code, get those together into one plan that we then send up to the rover every day. And we repeat that every Martian night, um, you know, and, and as we progress through our days on Mars, um, that's how, that's how we operate missions on Mars.
2: All those years of schooling, all of that preparation, and you're working the night shift. uh, (laughs) I did this. I worked in mission control for 25 shuttle flights. And yeah, it's just uh, weird hours all around the clock. The mission takes over your own life, of course. You try and squeeze your whole life into the little spaces that are around work. But it's it's got to be a pretty exciting time for you, too, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. And, and what makes it even harder on Mars is that I say I work the Martian night shift, but just to make it harder, a Sol, which is a Martian day, is is 24 hours and 40 minutes. So that also means that even though I start at 6 p.m. every night on Mars, it shifts by 40 minutes on Earth. So, So what I did for my parents is I have this Google spreadsheet that tells them what time I'm waking up and what time I'm going to bed and then what time I might have free time after my shift if they want to call me. Um, I've got to say my dog does not like Mars time. He's not happy about it. He's always tired, always wondering why I'm not home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I have to ask a really practical question. Uh, I'll start with you, Farrah, but I want to hear from you on this too, Chris. How do you sleep? So in those, you know, uh, demanding circumstances where you're having to shift your sleep patterns all the time, are you able to sleep? And, you know, so many of us are having challenges in the pandemic with sleeping how do you do it? What's your secret?
1: Well, I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm tired all the time when I'm done with work. There are really long days. So sleeping, you know, I think working 80 hour weeks for weeks on end until a Mars landing and then having to work really intense 10 hour shifts, like sleep is not a problem. Um, so, So that's, I mean, on days where it's harder, going for a jog and, and self care is really important. You know, especially when I'm when the night shift on Mars is the same as the night shift on Earth. I have you know, I my little sun lamp. I try and uh, I try and exercise, even you know, no matter how painful it is at four in the morning to be doing squats. But um, but you know, those things help. Uh, but certainly for me, so far, it hasn't been too much of a problem. Um, I do wake up with, uh, stress dreams of like, Oh, what's going on, Lars? And, you know, trying to, you, it's hard to disconnect from what's happening. Probably a lot harder to disconnect when you're in space on the space station. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I think good sleep hygiene, exercise, and just in general, with how demanding the job is, it hasn't been too hard to get sleep.
2: Yeah, for me, there's there's been two big phases of that. One, when I was working in mission control around the clock. And uh, like Farah, I, I, I had uh, pets at home, but also had kids at home. And and so I, I realized, I, you know, because I need my family to sort of be able to function normally. And I think I sleep better when it's dark. And so I learned to sleep with a pillow on my head with just enough of a hole underneath to breathe. And and so that way I, I could damp out the sound of my household, the sound of, you know, Texas and uh, and the light of the window and sleep and I end up doing that now um, all the time when I want to sleep I just you know cover up my eyes and my ears but on a spaceship obviously you get a sunrise every 92 minutes so it's confusing so we we make the spaceship dark and we cover the windows and we sort of turn down all the lights to pretend it's nighttime and then try and make it quiet and then each of our little sleep pods has a door it's tiny but it gives you sort of that same sort of sense Mm -hmm. Um, and then you try and run on some sort of regular cycle, and just just you know fool your body into thinking it's on on a, on a regular cycle. But moving every every forty minutes every day, of course, that's just a constant dripping uh, water torture on, on your sleep cycle. And and you know you just have to have to live with it. But I mean, gosh, you're driving and flying helicopters on Mars. You know you can sleep later, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> So, getting back to what you're saying about your role in planning, Farah, what is the role of planning in success? Sometimes we hear these stories, you know, about, um, you know, in the tech world, for example, it's about moving fast and it's about breaking things. Um, we don't often, we don't necessarily hear as much about planning. What's your perspective on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not so much about moving fast and breaking things when you're on Mars, right? Like you don't have that luxury. It's the same, you know, anything that's space related. Once you're out there, there's no, you know, there's, there's no way to fix your, your Rover. There's no way to sp- fix your spacecraft uh, if it's on Mars. Um, so we work very, very differently, right? So in, in development, of course, we move fast, we try, we test, we test all over again, uh, and we test our designs. But when it comes to operations, it's, it's again about testing, but it's definitely about preparation, right? We will, I always say that once we do something on Mars, it's almost boring because we've done it like a million times on earth before we do it on Mars. right? And we, we have, for example, a replica of perseverance called optimism. And we have a big, um, what we call a Mars yard. It's a big sandbox essentially where we drive around our Rover and, um, and we put it through its spaces. Like, like deploying the Ingenuity helicopter, that's the next big thing that's going to be happening. I've tested it at least 20 times in the Mars yard, right? And, and we test it over and over. Um, so that's, that's what preparation looks like is, is we build our activities, we test them. Um, we, we put it through all of the off nominal scenarios that we think might happen on Mars and we make sure that we're robust against them. And then we do it on Mars and, and then sometimes it still doesn't look like the way we want it to, but most of the time when things go wrong, we kind of expected it and know how to react. And if we don't, we can pause. And, um, that's kind of one of the advantages of being on the surface of another planet rather than orbiting somewhere or going somewhere is if something goes wrong, the rover knows how to, has some automation. It knows how to react. It, you know, goes into what we call a safe mode and calls home and then. And then we're there to fix it. So it's definitely about preparation. It's about expect planning for the worst, also, uh, and being prepared for anomalies.
2: I love how the alter ego of perseverance is optimism. I think I'm going to adopt that as my own personal philosophy now. Uh, on my side, of course, the stakes, uh, the stakes of perseverance, it's a vast amount of money and a very rare opportunity, but nobody's dying. Our stakes are even higher, of course, because if we get it wrong, everybody dies. So we even take planning, if, if you possibly could from that description you just made. I think we take it even more seriously in human spaceflight. Maybe, for example, I've done uh, two spacewalks and the spacewalks totaled 15 hours. So, you know, you'll probably be awake 15 hours today. I, I got ready for those 15 hours uh, for most of my life. Like I had to learn to scuba dive and then how to hard hat dive and all the rest of it. And then, we had to build all the models underwater of everything we were going to do out on a spacewalk. So go to the model builders and get them built so they were high fidelity. And then I spent uh, four years developing the spacewalks in, with a huge team of people and then practicing them. And I, I know I spent 400 hours underwater. And, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day. So that's a lot of days um, over and over and over again. And it's not like you're just training. But you're inventing much like Farah's team is doing. They have to invent it all. You can't just look up in the book of how to fly a helicopter on Mars. They have to invent it. And then they need a realistic enough test to then go convince themselves that maybe they got a good shot of, of, of it working. And, and we, we face the same thing. And you're right. When you actually get in a rocket ship and launch, you're like, Oh, nothing broke today. Well, that was easy, <laughs> yeah, which is exactly the way you want it to be that the actual execution, um, becomes a relief. But I think there is, Jody a business and life application of that. And there's almost always more time to prepare than people allow themselves. And if you know something serious is coming in your life or in your work or whatever, it's maybe good to to spend just a little time simulating it in in your mind and running over what are the possible consequences and which ones are you least ready for and maybe try and do the work in advance because it really optimizes your chances of succeeding.
0: Chris, I quote you all the time. I, I say, plan the flight and fly the plan. <laughs> so there's absolutely uh, applications uh, in, in our daily lives. So to ask about another one, uh, which is, how do you not get overwhelmed by how much investment has gone into these missions? Um, you know, every business book is going to tell you, you know, ignore sunk costs. But that's easier said than done. How do you achieve that? when you're working on such important missions. Chris, do you want to start on that one?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, you do have to just accept it to some degree. Um, I think you also need to feel the sense of responsibility, what we call the public trust. Uh, There's an enormous, unstated, um, but uh, overbearing public trust. That uh, nothing's cavalier. Uh, It influences our behavior. We call it expeditionary behavior, where the mission, the the objective of what you're doing far outstrips yourself and your own preferences and, 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 you know, Ferris Dog's preferences. You just have to kind of live with the fact that, hey, this is... The thing that is actually establishing the rhythm of my life. And it's probably going to establish it for the next 10 years. And so now I need to start subjugating everything to that, so that I can be part of the team that optimizes this success. Because, you know, we recognize that the amount of sweat and tears that go into allowing us to be the people, you know, making the decisions to whether this is going to succeed or not. And, and to me, that the sort of the biggest um, impact of that at my own level is is a huge obligation to constantly try and get better at what I'm doing. You know, like a relentless dissatisfaction with my own level of competence all the time. And just constantly, when the moment comes, to have done everything that I possibly could to be able to do what I'm, I need to do in amongst the team on that day. Th- that's how I deal with it. I, I, I just kind of recognize, hey, I've got a job to do, and I'm going to make myself as ready as I possibly can. But then again, I'm not flying a helicopter on Mars.
1: Well, I think I think you kind of hit it there on on the fact that we're doing something that's greater than ourselves, right? And that's kind of that's kind of in a way the beauty of of aerospace engineering or engineering as a whole is that like we're part of a big team, and each of us brings something to the table, and and we hold each other accountable, and that's that's how you get through it, right? And and complex systems like like the space station, like this rover that's the beauty of them. Like no single human understands the whole thing. No single human could build that on their own, but as a team, we make it happen and we are a team player. We hold each other accountable and we, we make things happen. So, so yeah, I completely agree with, with what you said, Chris, that, you know, you bring your best self, you bring what you can to the table and you, you become, I mean, that team that I work with has become my family, right? My, I call them my work family. we, we are there day and night. We push each other to we question each other. Uh it's the only time that you want criticism from people, right? Like you take it, you like, tell me what's wrong, tell me, poke at this, right? I invite people to my meetings and say, come look at what I did and ask questions. And and that's how we succeed in in, in uh in in big projects like that. And it's it's definitely, you know, that that concept of public trust. I, I definitely especially the past month, right? Have that sense of like, wow, the the world is watching. Um, and, and and it's, 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 but it's, it, you can take it as stressful, but you can also take it as, as something that gives you energy, right? To me, the fact that the world is watching, it's so wonderful. I get to share what I do with the entire world. I get to bring them on this journey with me. I get to explain to them why it's difficult and, and, uh, and share the successes with them. Um, So, I think you have to take it as as something that's positive as something that's part of your job and and take energy from it rather than than letting it scare you
2: to me, Jody, it's almost a little bit like singing in a really good choir you know where there's all those voices around you and you've got your part, and if you just sing your part by yourself, it's actually kind of boring, but when all those other voices are going and you realize, wow, this is something way bigger than myself and you can create something together that is beautiful and magnificent and it honors some artist who wrote the music and, and you don't want to blow your part, of course, and you got to get, you got to, you want your voice to be sweet and on tune, but, uh, but that feeling of, of uh, capability that outstrips uh, your own individual input. Yeah. It's, it's really uh, intoxicating. And and I think maybe that's how you get over the fact that, you know, you're inside a cathedral while you're doing it. <laughs>
0: You're both so insp- inspirational, honestly. Um, Farah, you've had to work differently with your team this time around, though, because of COVID. So what has, uh, what has that been like, uh, executing this mission in the time of a pandemic? And what have you learned about being a good team member, uh, under these public health restrictions?
1: Yeah, it has been interesting, right? So it's crazy because yesterday was our anniversary of uh, the stay-at-home order here. So, um, and I, I remember March of last year. Um, I had gone climbing in the Sierras. The Sierras are the in the mountains here in in Southern California, and I came back to LA. You know, <laughs> climbing all weekend, no signal, no nothing. And then I come back to LA and. And there's no one on the freeway, which if you've ever been to LA, that never happens. Uh, it is literally the apocalypse. And, and we get this email from work saying, Hey, don't come in tomorrow. Now, March of 2020, we were, you know, four or five months away from launching this rover. We had shipped the rover already from here, uh, from California all the way to Kennedy Space Center, which is where it was getting launched. And a lot of us were due to fly out to Florida to support activities. We were all planning this big, Party for the launch and and to be together, and all of a sudden they're like, nope, you're doing your work from home and uh, and by the way, this is a planetary deadline because you can only launch to Mars every twenty six months, so we still got to go. you still have to make this um, but somehow reinvent the way you work so um you know i the the name perseverance for the rover was was announced in February of 2020 and and when it was announced. <laughs> All I remember saying is, wow, that's really hard to spell. <laughs> Why is it so long? And and never has a name become so important and so representative of what our team did. And, and whenever people ask me, what do you think the greatest achievement on this team is? You know, yes, the, the rover is complex. Yes, we had to invent new technology. But being able to adapt that fast to somehow figure out how to work on a job that is inherently, you know, teamwork that uses people and, and to do it mostly from home. I still go to lab from time to time. Um, that, that was a remarkable achievement. Um, I think one thing that helps us is that all of us kind of work remotely from Mars when we do operations. So, so we have the tools in place, right? <laughs> um, so, um, to, to help that, we just had to do it a little bit earlier than expected. Um, but we adapted. And I think what it came down to is, is good communication. It came down to actually checking in with people a little bit more understanding that we're all going through our stresses that like, you know, imagine having a multi-billion dollar mission you got to succeed to. And also a worldwide pandemic. And some of us, you know, some people have kids at home. Some people have at risk parents at home. Um, so I think it's made us stronger as a team. It made us take the time to pause and not just talk about work, but check in with people, ask them if they need anything. Uh the amount of times that, you know, people have brought groceries for each other, shared masks or cleaning supplies because we needed them. Um, as a whole, it's made us a stronger team. Uh, but uh yeah, so it was definitely a challenge. But I think you know I think we've gotten past it, we've surmounted it and and but what I have to tell you is the one thing I miss is you know we're used to having happy hours every few weeks whenever we have big uh big uh um successes and those zoom happy hours are not the same, um, so certainly getting looking forward to uh to getting vaccinated here in the next few months and and getting to have those late celebrations of of everything that's been accomplished in the last year.
0: So Chris, you're obviously not on the International Space Station any longer, but you're still involved in really big and complex projects. What has your COVID experience been like continuing to pursue projects? Is it similar to Ferris or or, or have you had some differences there?
2: Yeah, it's similar. I think I actually I learned a lot while I was on the space station, Jody, because obviously we were as physically isolated as any group of human beings could be. We were also perpetually surrounded by sort of an amorphous danger, you know, meteorites hitting our ship and things like that. And also you don't ever really know when it's going to end you don't know for sure when you're ever coming home from a space mission. You know, it's, you've got a date in mind, but you never know. So I think that psychology helped prepare me. But something uh, Farrah said really struck home to me. And that was, um, you sort of have to be more communicative. And, and, and I, I find I'm applying it now, not only in the way I organize my life under this sort of isolation, but also when you're talking to someone virtually, you only get, a small fraction of the normal uh, cues that you would get if you were sitting face to face. And, and it's easy to forget the humanity of the person you're talking with. If I'm speaking to someone in mission control in Moscow or, or, uh, you know, just outside of Tokyo or somewhere, it's easy just like you're talking to a help desk or something and, and to sort of not see the, the just the regular humanity of that other person. They have imperfections. Uh, they they may have had a terrible night at home or who knows what pressures they're going through. And you miss all of those cues. And so I've really tried to be extra um, attentive uh, during the COVID times, and I did from space, to cut people a lot more slack than you would normally. You know, it may be too Canadian, but to be kinder. You know, just actually deliberately be kind to the people you're talking to, especially since uh, you're not going to get that chance to just go, hey, at the end of the week, oh, we had you know, all these things happen. But on Friday, let's all, you know, do something fun together. You know, Zoom is, is a kind of a substitute for fun at best. So, so I think looking for ways to celebrate, looking for ways to be kind and, um, and generous to each other, I think that's really important in, in a more virtual world.
0: Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And the absence of celebrations, not just for the lack of fun, but also um that's what allows us to pick ourselves up and move on to that next project. It creates those feelings of satisfaction. It you know nudges important reflections. It's it's really hard uh to, to not have uh to not have those moments. And I think in about the summer I stopped. I stopped my list of things to celebrate, you know, for a period of time, I kind of thought, oh, well, we'll celebrate those, you know, after the pandemic. Uh, but now I'm kind of like, okay, well, you know, have to do our best uh, to be present and, uh, and to try and do those things. And I guess we'll, ha- we'll have to have a, a, a global uh, party to, to celebrate all the different things that have been achieved uh, throughout this period.
2: <laughs> yeah, the roaring 20s are coming for just that reason, I think. People, people will be pent up and ready.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to pick up on something uh, that you said earlier, Farah, and it's and it's echoes of Chris in my head. Why? 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 I'm asking this, and that's you said when you're preparing. Part of those when you're playing in that sandbox uh, to prepare, you plan for the worst. And I asked Chris this question uh, on another time that that we had chatted, and I want to ask you. How do you remain optimistic, though, when you're thinking about all the things that can go wrong? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so I mean, because we've planned for the things that we can go wrong, that's that's how you remain optimistic, right? I think I think as engineers, it's our job to understand the the risks that we're buying into. Um, so for every activity, we think, okay, well, it's going to This is how we've designed it. It's mostly going to go this way. Um, But let me think through all the possible things that can go wrong. And then some of them are outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about them, right? So um, if you're on your way to Mars and a mega meteorite hits you, that's bigger than you expected it to. Well, the odds of that happening are so small that you can't plan against everything. Um, So you take You take the big things, the big risks and you worry about those and you try and reduce those. Um, and, and you do your best to be ready for the things, but you also, there's, I, I've learned from, from this experience that you can't be in control of everything. And that, that's something that took me a while. I'm very much like, I like being in control of my life, right? But you can't, you can't be in control of everything. The odds of getting a global pandemic right like it's not something that you plan for it happens and then you're like well got to deal with it right and 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 we deal with what we can and i think that's what's something that engineering's taught me that you can apply to life is is with anything there are risks and you understand the risks and you you take on a certain amount of risk in any activity that you take i mean you could you could walk outside the door and something could happen to you. You don't plan for every single bad thing that could happen in your life. Um and so the same applies to engineering is is you communicate those risks and you buy into them and you still decide to take that step to do an activity, to do something on Mars um, based on that understanding. Um and that's that's really the best you can do. Uh there's, there's, you can't you can't plan for everything.
0: Chris, did you want to build on that at all? You've, you, you've spoken so eloquently about how you think about the things that, that, that could kill you when you're, when you're in space.
2: Right. Well, um, I, you know, from an engineering point of view, every single component of perseverance has an engineering factor of safety built into its design. And you have to decide what, you know, how strong, make it simple, you know, how strong does this piece of metal need to be? Uh, and obviously, you don't want it to be flimsy, but you don't need it to be cast iron. There's somewhere in the middle where it's the right trade-off. And you have to decide where are my factors of safety limits going to be? And it's pretty simple when you're talking about a piece of metal, but how do you apply that to your own life? Right. And how do you decide how robust do my skills and my capabilities need to be? I think the better way to look at it is what are what are the most probable things that might go wrong? And, you know, in, in, in a mission like perseverance or, you know, in life or at work or at family or whatever. And actually do yourself the favor of just like uh, Farrah and her team did for perseverance. Make a big list. Or in your case, you know, just make a list of the 10 things. These are the actual big threats from, you know, financial or health or or whatever. And so, and I acknowledge these are the biggest, you know, getting a car accident or cancer or whatever, you know, you can just decide what are your big threats, a fire in your house and then say, okay, those are my big threats. All right. Um, When they happen, what are they going to look like? And am I ready to deal with that? And is there any way to head them off at the pass? Can I increase my factor of safety? Can I, you know, change the batteries in my smoke detectors? Or could I put in more smoke detectors? Or could I, you know, choose my patterns of activity? Actually think about it. And then look how you can understand it better and and decide if this is a risk worth taking in your life. Because, I don't know, Farrah's been climbing in the Sierras, but I, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker. i'll take risks but only because they they serve a purpose that i think is valid and um and so think about the risks that you're taking too is this really what i want to be doing with my life and then when you come into it it's a risk that you've considered you've developed some sort of factor of safety a set of skills you've got a background so when it happens oh my my you know smoke alarm goes off i'm not just stunned and panicked and, and incapable. I'm like, okay, I, 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 it's not what I wanted to happen, but at least now I understand where I am on this and and I can uh, have my next actions somewhat planned in advance. And I remember coming back from my first space flight thinking nothing went as planned. I mean, it was so ad hoc, and, and but everything was somewhere within the scope of what we trained for, sort of within our factor of safety. And that gave me a great comfort throughout the whole flight.
0: Fair. I wanted to ask you, I heard the word balance there, and it made me think about the ingenuity. You mentioned the ingenuity, the helicopter that is a part of this Mars mission um, in terms of testing the technology. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the ingenuity and what it is um, you're trying to figure out with that uh, particular piece of technology?
2: Yeah, I'm a pilot. I'm super excited about <laughs> this as well. I really want to it. Excellent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um yeah, I mean we're attempted the, we're attempting the first powered flight on another planet. That's that what that's what it comes down to. And and what I think is so crazy, right? I don't even know how like we're daring to do this. We've we've only been flying on Earth for about a hundred years and now we're like, yep, yeah, we're gonna go to this other planet. Mars, by the way, only has like 1% of the Earth's atmosphere, one third of the gravity. So that helps a little bit, but doesn't quite make up for the lack of lift. Um, and it has these strange wind patterns that we have to go through. But, but you know what? We don't, we don't get anywhere with exploration without trying. And, and, uh, and rovers themselves, right? Started off as technology demonstration missions. There was the, uh, the Sojourner mission that had, that had a little rover. And that's how, that's how that was the first rover. Actually, some of the people that worked on that mission I work with now, which I think is really cool <laughs> to, uh, to have heard about them and now get to get to work with them. And, you know, we went from we built on that to a bigger mission. So that's what ingenuity is. It's a technology demonstration. We're going to attempt to fly. We might fail. Um, but, you know, we were talking earlier about you don't get anything without trying. You know we've prepared as much as we can. We uh, we think the design should work on Mars, but Mars is another planet, and it throws surprises at us. But but if we succeed in this flight, and we're going to attempt multiple flights, that's going to give us even if we fail, that's going to give us a ton of data to try to understand what it looks like to fly on Mars, and hopefully, right. The idea is that next time we bring a helicopter on Mars. It might not just be a technology demonstration mission. It could be a scout for a rover. It could do its own science. Um, but, you know, let's talk a little bit about what it takes to build a helicopter. Um, you know, I just said, oh, well, Mars is a third of the gravity and 1% of the atmosphere. How do you test for that? We're You know, we're here on Earth. Can't really change gravity on Earth um i can't change the atmosphere so we have these special chambers which we call thermal vacuum chambers where we can literally pull the atmosphere out of it and we backfill it to about martian atmosphere and we can sort of simulate winds and then uh the engineers on ingenuity came up literally used their ingenuity to come up with a uh, a testing rig to to do like to have a gravity offset system and that that's something that people don't always think about. I mean, Chris mentioned it a little bit earlier that it's not just the doing or the building of the spacecraft that's hard. The testing and the rigs that you have to use, you have to invent that too. And sometimes that's even harder than what you're building yourself. Um, so that, yeah, that's how they tested it. And and for reference, right, the, uh, the helicopter itself is only about 1.2 kilograms and it has its blades. So that counter-rotated blades is two of them. They're uh, about four foot long, so just over a meter long. Um, so we think that that ratio should work. And, and in our tests, you know, we were able to achieve lift and stability. Uh, and, uh, but there's certainly a, a little bit of a, of a sentiment of nervousness, right? Like we, we've prepared as well as we can, but the risk on this one is definitely greater. Um, uh, but the rewards also greater. The stakes are lower. It's obviously a, a, a more simple instrument than the, than the rest of the mission. Uh, so we'll, We'll have to see how that goes, but I, I mean, I think either way on on this particular part of the mission, we're going to learn so much—failure or success. Um, and I mean, that's that's true.
2: Didn't I just see yesterday, though, uh, in the background video from Perseverance, there was a little tornado, a little uh, dust devil, yeah. right <laughs> close to where you're going to be flying your helicopter.
1: Yeah, we've seen a few dust devils on Mars already, which we don't always see. Um, you know, I, I worked on the InSight mission before this and it took us months to even catch a single dust devil. So, so that was a little surprising when we saw that. And, and so we've actually asked the team to, to be like, hey, can, can we watch for these a bit more, figure out if they come at a certain time of day? Uh, one thing that's strange or different from Earth on Mars is that, um, is that the weather patterns are usually pretty predictable once you know what they are um so you know the high winds would come at a certain time of day and it's quieter at others so so we're we're trying to to understand that weather pattern as fast as we can in order to choose for example a a better time to fly because yeah flying through a dust devil uh, wouldn't be too fun
2: (laughs) who's uh, you know yeah before every take uh, i've been a pilot my whole life i've always you know asked so what's the winds what are The weather, you know, and your weatherman's a long ways away. But who's going to clear ingenuity for takeoff? Who actually gets that responsibility?
1: So it's it's a team effort again. So uh, and by the way, we do have a weather station on the rover, and that's that's we meet with them every. The instrument team that's in charge of that to give us the literally we get weather forecasts on Mars. But um, but yeah, we um, we uh, it's a team decision every day. Um, as to whether we fly or not, and it comes into—it's the same as flying on Earth, right? Um, and then we do have a team of pilots for our helicopters. So we have three engineers who are the ones actually designing the flight. Um, but all of us look at the data separately and come together to to give that go for flight uh, whenever
0: it happens. Gosh, that is just so fascinating and so so exciting. So talking about um, that scientific. Uh, and technological aspect of building the ingenuity and you saying, no matter what, you're going to learn so much. So, so there being this educational purpose. Um, When, when you're about to embark on something complex, what is the role of purpose um, in your thinking? I'm going to ask Chris to answer this first. Um, You know, how important is purpose in terms of coming
2: up with that plan? Uh, I think it's, uh, especially in the various jobs that I've had, it, it's the ultimate decider. Form follows function. And, uh, and it's easy to get distracted by things that don't matter. But uh, purpose is, is a beautiful uh, clarifier of what's actually important or what, what's not. And, and when you define what are the things that, that are your measures of success, like if we have to get this done and these eight things are slightly less important. Okay. Well, that will help us then prioritize all of the trade-offs you need to make. You know, how big can it be? How heavy can it be? How much of this can we carry? How long can it work? Everything else, everything is going to be the daughter of purpose when you're doing it. And I actually think it, it really helps. Um, And when I was sitting in the cockpit uh, of the space shuttle, you know, during launch, um, I think you just said it. One of the things we would often say to each other is, so what's the next thing that's going to kill us? Not because it's negative, but because that actually... Let's gives everybody permission to stop being distracted by things that aren't purposeful. You know, uh, you can actually say, gosh, the next thing that's going to kill us, that is our purpose right now. We have to be ready for that. And if we make it through that one, then maybe we have a little bandwidth to deal with something else. And so uh, I, I find it's a wonderful aid through everything I do in my life, um, but specifically for the moments of, of really high consequence.
0: Farah, can you build on that? What's, what's the role of purpose in in your work? Yeah, I think Chris hit it on the head right there. right? It's, it drives
1: everything. When you're, when you're designing missions or when you're doing anything, it's very easy to get distracted with the million things that you could do or the million things that could matter. Um, but it's really important. I hear it so many times at work. All right, let's take a step back. What are we actually trying to achieve here? What are we trying to do? Does this really matter? Right? And and you know I'm I'm worried about this part here, but I'm trying to do this. What's the bigger picture? And um, I think as engineers, it's very easy, especially when you're focused on the little part of something, to really dive down and and worry about something small. So it's really important to remember, you know, what's the what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Uh, not only in design, but also you know, Chris mentioned. Your, what are your success metrics? Like, what are you trying to achieve? That's important to keep in mind, even in the bigger picture, when you're doing something, when you're doing the thing, you know, and, and things go wrong here and things go wrong here, you have to go in with a mindset of, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? So for ingenuity, we're trying to understand what it's like to fly on another planet, right? If things go wrong, I'm still working towards that goal. Um, even, even if I don't achieve flight, I'm still working towards that goal. Right. And, and I think that's what, that's what allows us to measure our success. It's what we build to, and that's what, that's what we measure ourselves against. So, um, so yeah, it, I think it drives everything and that's where it's, we, you know, we design with intention is how we say it. So you, you figure out what you want and you design and operate around it.
0: That's fantastic. Um, and so helpful. Um, I want to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've both mentioned teams. And Farah, I wanted to ask you, uh, I've uh, read you know, some, of the, some of your interviews and, and you've described yourself as not necessarily fitting the mold. What, what, what is the role of diversity, equity, inclusion in the success of teams? So I think
1: it's incredibly important. Yeah, we've talked a lot about teams today and and the fact that we, you know, we're problem solvers and we work as teams to solve problems and 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 to me a diverse diverse team is a, the best equipped team to meet a problem. If we have you don't want your team to all have the same background, all have the same way of thinking. I don't need someone else next to me who thinks the same way, who's not going to challenge me uh in in what I do. You know, I mentioned this, I like being challenged as an engineer. I like being questioned. And to me, having people with diverse backgrounds, diverse life experiences who've approached problems in their lives in a different way, that makes them b- better team members, right? That very team. We will look at The same problem with different sets of eyes. um, And and I think that's important in achieving, um, you know, and in meeting complex problems and achieving complex goals. And then, you know, the the other thing that's really important, right, is if I'm gonna have a team, I want the best team that there can be to work on this problem, right? I want anyone to feel welcome, I want them to be their best selves uh, and to come to that table. And so we need to make it an inclusive environment for people to feel like they can apply for these jobs, that they can fully be themselves when they're working in a team and not have to worry about like, well, is someone judging me because of my skin color or my hair color or my heritage or whatever? Um, so to me, you know, I always say I do a lot of work in DNI, and and I encourage a lot of, people to try and see themselves in these positions. I always say that it's a little selfish in a way because I want the best people to come work with me. And, and the way that we can achieve that is by giving everyone that job or giving everyone the, you know, the, the willingness to dream themselves into that place. That's something that I had a hard time with growing up, right? I didn't see anyone at NASA that looked like me. Um, and and I didn't really imagine it took me a while to even allow myself to dream to be there because there wasn't anyone like me there. Um, so by, by giving more people that dream, that opportunity that, that, you know, the, the belief that they too can be there, I think that gives us a better pool of applicants and essentially eventually better teams, uh, to achieve, you know, to achieve these complex, uh, missions. So, um, so yeah, I think diversity is incredibly important in teams and it only makes us stronger.
2: Yeah, I think diversity is is where you get uh, options, right? You get get different ways of solving the same problem. Uh, I got to know Stephen Hawking very slightly. Imagine if there was no hoopla. If Stephen Hawking was just uh, someone next to you on the sidewalk, you're, you know, it would be very difficult, given our cultural biases and our, our norms of perception, to look at that man completely physically incapacitated, sitting in a chair you know, where he can't do any of the functions that all of us take for granted, um, to recognize the brilliance that was going on inside that man's brain. And we had worked so hard to develop a different set of rules and a different system, this mostly technological, that would allow that person's wild diversity, but his his brilliance to still be able to affect the lives of other people. And, and or you could look at, I don't know, Helen Keller or someone else who would be so easy to dismiss. I was lucky growing up that most of the American and Soviet astronauts, they sort of looked like me, you know, a white male. So it was easy to, to sort of visualize myself being one of them. But uh, I think NASA um, and the space agencies Probably lead most organizations in recognizing that all we really care about is that you're really good at your job and we need that skill. And, and so the, the visible diversity of the people that are working on the projects, whether it's on, on perseverance or whether it's in the, in the human space program, I think becomes sort of a great shining example of what a lot of people should, should aspire to. And that is, uh, your own initiative and your own set of skills and your work ethic and your own, if, if I can your own perseverance, um, that's what is going to give you opportunity in life. And it's really nice when you see you know, someone like Farah, um, who most people you know, would would cast in a different role just a generation or two ago to be in such a strong and visible leadership role. It's doing great work and also inspiring a whole bunch of other people, too.
0: Yeah, on behalf of so many people, Farah, thank you so much for um, taking on the public aspects of this role, too, right? Um, just as Chris has. Uh, you both were part of really important, complex, uh, resource-intensive missions, um, but you also both really um, uh, execute and serve the, the greater public uh, as well, and, and that's just um, of huge benefit to us all, so, so thank you for that. Absolutely. Before I let you both go, I did want to ask each of you uh, one one question, one last question about, you know, what what is happening next uh, for for both of you. But starting with you, uh, Farah, what happens next on this Mars mission? And do you have a sense of what happens after that? (laughs)
1: Um, you know we mentioned this a little bit earlier you
0: know, like fully like it's
1: very all encompassing right now you know, I'm, li- I'm literally living on Mars right we call it Mars time um, so that will go on until mid-May uh, we do this Mars time only for three months it would be a very intense to do it for much longer um, but we have so much to achieve between now and mid-May right I think I'm really looking at the next month and a half two months here of hopefully flying on Mars we're finishing in the checkouts of of our rover. Um, you know, the rover, I didn't mention it because there was so many other things to talk about, but one of the cool things of the rover is it's self-driving. And we're hoping to test out that self-driving capability to continue exploring Mars, to take our first sample on Mars. Um, so there's so much to come uh, just on this mission. Um, and so I'm going to be with the mission at least till the end of the calendar year. I am hoping to take a few months off to uh, to also, you know, take care of my personal life, visit my family, spend a month climbing somewhere. Um, you know, take, it's really important, right? We are, we get really passionate about our jobs and, um, but I, I need to take that step back. And then, and then after that, um, it's, you know, there's, there's so many opportunities out there. JPL is working on a mission, uh, a spacecraft to Europa uh to look at um of that moon of jupiter that potentially you know that has water and could potentially harbor life uh we obviously have this mars sample return campaign that you know uh, perseverance is the first step in a set of missions perseverance is taking samples on mars that we hope to return i mean that mission all right we're collecting samples on mars right now and you think that's hard this next mission is going to go to Mars, land a small rover to go get those samples. But we are also landing a rocket on Mars and to put the samples in there and then launch the rocket to get it back to Earth. You think, you know, launching rockets on Earth is hard. Now we're going to go to another planet and do that, too. And by the way, with a scientific cash that like the entire science community is waiting for, so it better not blow up. Um, so, So that would be an incredible project to work on. Um, you know, I just, I think I say to people, whenever they ask me, what's the next step? I always say, well, I don't know quite what the next step is, uh, but I, I think my whole career will be spent exploring the solar system and and, uh, and I'm totally fine with that, no matter what path I end up taking.
2: Et, et la prochaine visite chez vous quebec uh,
1: J'aimerais ça venir au Québec uh, justement en septembre, octobre, parce que toute ma famille vit encore à Montréal. Oui. Euh, donc c'est pour ça que je vais prendre des vacances voir ma famille euh, mes grands-parents qui, qui qui sont un peu plus âgés maintenant euh, mais aussi j'ai j'ai énormément d'amis et de bon, ma vie est au Québec donc euh, j'aimerais ça revenir euh, revenir voir tout le monde avant de prendre ma prochaine étape euh, dans ma carrière
2: avec la fierté énorme là-bas j'imagine.
1: Ah ouais. <rire> euh, oui, j'ai entendu c'était tellement beau de voir des messages euh, des jeunes en des, Les plus beaux messages que j'ai reçus, c'est, c'est des mères et des pères qui, qui, m'envoient des messages à leurs enfants qui, qui ont des questions sur persévérance. C'est, c'est tellement fou de se dire que, wow, tout le Canada et le Québec est, est investi là-dedans maintenant. Ils sont capables de, de partager ces moments avec moi. Ça me fait tellement plaisir.
2: That's great.
0: And Chris, I wanted to ask you about what's next for you. Uh, we've chatted a little bit about it. You uh, have a work of fiction uh, coming out this year. Uh, tell us about that. Your other projects, and you have to tell us what's scarier: writing fiction or <laughs> or going into space. <laughs>
2: uh, I think. I mean, it's uh, when Farah and I address. A, you know, I'm an engineer by original education, also. Uh, engineering problems tend to have a right or a wrong answer and a fairly clear outcome. Gosh, writing fiction, it's just infinite variables. And you have to do it with a team, of course. Obviously, there's publishers and, you know, everybody else, booksellers and everybody that's involved. But when it comes right down to it, it's it's a whole bunch of blood, sweat, and tears, but then it's a roll of the dice. I have to take this thing I've been creating, this, this story I imagined, the way I interwove it with fact to create this big vision of a thing and to, to then uh, polish it as well as I possibly can so that other people will understand what I meant. But then I've I just got to, you know, cast those dandelion seeds to the winds and hope somebody else enjoys the story. So, so I'm, I'm uh, nervous about it, of course. Launching a rocket ship, I, I just learned how all the pumps and the valves worked and knew what my reactions <laughs> were. And it's okay. I can, I can do that thing. So yeah, but uh, I'm loving the, the creative process. It's called The Apollo Murders, and it's, it's a thriller fiction book uh, set in 1973 with the Soviet program and the American program and going to the moon. So it's right in the heart of what I love. And I don't really have to ask too many people about details because I've done, you know, spacewalks and, and flown spaceships and things. So that gives me a lovely position to write from. Um, but we're just in the final editing stage now. Um, and we should be done in a few weeks and be able to, you know, start sending it to the early printers and things. For And it'll come out in October. But, yeah, it's a big part. I, I mean, I'm working with space companies and I run a technology incubator and I teach at university and and I do a lot of other things. But uh, but writing uh, fiction, writing a thriller, that's been a lot of fun for the last year. And I'm really looking forward to people reading it and uh, and seeing people's reactions and, and having that as, as something else that, that is part of my life.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to reading that book.
2: <laughs> the Apollo Murders. I'll send you a copy.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you so much to the both of you who advance science every day, but also um, really empower us all to... Dream big, and to and to really articulate what what our what our own dreams are, and to go out and achieve them. Thank you so much on behalf of everyone.
2: Congratulations, Sarah! I'm just so proud of what you folks are doing. Please tell your whole team if anybody knows uh, knows my name, but tell them I am just so fascinated and excited and proud of what everybody's doing, and, and you especially. Nice to talk to you with you today.
1: Hey, thank you, and it was a great great pleasure to talk with you as well.